And thank you, worship team. Wasn't that a wonderful video that I played before? It was good to see Doc again, uh, even if it was in, in video form. And at the end of that video, did you guys see the pulpit begin to descend into the ground? I wonder if that's an option for us as well. Maybe I'll uh, put that up the chain and see if that's a, a possibility. Uh, happy belated Veterans Day as well. I'm going to do the thing that everybody hates. Um, so I'm going to ask if you have served in our armed forces or are currently actively serving in our armed forces, would you mind standing so we can recognize you at this time? Thank you for your service. Thank you all for your sacrificial service. I know um, uh, effectively, virtually all of us have somebody or know of somebody who has served um, in the armed forces, and we can be grateful for them giving of themselves, and um, we're just incredibly grateful for all that you have done in order for us to have the freedoms that we currently, currently have. And as you get older, one of the bittersweet realities that is gradually revealed over time is the simple fact that each one of us is influential. Each one of us is, to put it to a word, a teacher. And it's not just when you realize this fact that you're influential, that you are a teacher, that it becomes a reality. That truth is present even from a very early age. When I started getting to know my wife's family, they lived down in uh, Cincinnati at the time. When I started getting to know her family, there was an expression that they kept saying, a phrase they repeated over and over again that was altogether foreign to me. I didn't understand what it was until I heard it in the context enough. The phrase was, Jeez, oh Pete. I don't know if any of you guys have heard that phrase before, geez, oh Pete. Uh, allegedly, it's something that you say if you're from Michigan or you say from, your, from Cincinnati, and that's basically it. It's in the same context as we'd say, like, come on, man. So instead of come on, man, they say, geez, oh Pete. Uh, I, I don't even know if there's anything bad about it. I just know that it was a phrase that was said quite often. Now, did each parent in Michigan and in Cincinnati sit their child down and say, now, buddy, When you confront a situation that's difficult, make sure you express your frustration by saying, geez, oh, Pete. Is that how all of these kids learn the phrase, geez, oh, Pete? No, what happened? They probably heard it a billion times from their parents, and they probably heard it said about them. And so by way of context, they're like, oh, I understand what this means. And in some sense, this tendency to passively acquire knowledge Uh, And habit, even in many senses, is a gift from the Lord. Uh, We don't need to actively instruct every little thing. Kids pick up a whole lot along the way, and that's that's can be a blessing. You don't have to teach your kids uh, how to breathe. You don't teach have to teach your kids necessarily how to uh, speak the the language that they're going to end up speaking. They pick up a whole lot along the way. In, In another sense, it can be a little bit disconcerting, can it? Each parent recalls a time when they've heard their kids say something or do say something that caused them to ask, where did you learn that? Where did you pick that up from? And what happens two days later? You catch yourself doing that very same thing. You say the exact same thing. Uh, But the same goes for folks who aren't parents. Siblings pick up things from siblings, whether passively or actively. Kids learn from their peers. The older generation even picks up things from the younger generation. What is the idea All of us, each one of us, we are teachers from the youngest to the oldest. The question is, are we good ones or are we bad ones? So we're continuing our emphasis on stewardship this month uh, with discussion of stewardship of the next generation as our video would even 
point to, and we'll begin by reading Psalm 78, if you would turn there. That's going to be the source text this morning. Psalm 78, we're going to look at passages or verses 1 through 7 this morning. And last week, Pastor Aaron talked about stewarding our discipline, and he talked about that out of 1 Timothy chapter 4, utilizing Paul's example of spiritual discipline as it equates to physical discipline. And in many ways, we'll be building off of what Pastor Aaron had talked about last week, kind of going off of that discussion. But before we get to our topic this morning, it's worth, and I didn't realize it was in the video, so you already got a little bit of a a tet or a little bit of a a gimme beforehand. It's worth going over what are the four factors of stewardship, and we're going to do it without any aid. Let's put it to the first person as well. So let's see if we can get all four of them without any help. The first one is God owns everything I own nothing. Very good. And the second one is, God has entrusted us with everything we have, everything, you, everything I have. First person, sorry. And then the third one is, I can either increase or decrease what God has given me. God wants me to increase it. And what's the sobering last one? God can call me into account at any time and it might be today. Very good. You guys did well. You guys did well. The matter that we're going to be discussing today is mainly dealing with the second and the third principle of stewardship. God entrusts me with all that I have, and I can either increase that or I can decrease it. God wants us to increase it. God has given us subsequent generations. He's entrusted them to us, and we can certainly squander the call to train them up in a manner that pleases the Lord. Even there, we see gospel implications. Jesus says, go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. The implication there is generations to follow. And graciously, the Lord doesn't leave us to our own devices in this matter. He gives us the tools necessary to steward the next generation. So let's turn to one of the more concentrated passages that talks about the stewardship of the next generation as well as the tools in order to do so. Psalm 78 Starting in verse 1, this is God's guidance of his people in their unfaithfulness. This is a mascal of Asaph. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open up my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which have heard and known, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children. But tell them too, the generation to come, the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. For he established a testimony for Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children, that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. This is the word of the Lord that we're going to be walking through this morning. And looking at our passage, we're going to discuss four essential elements of stewarding the next generation. We see it's ripe within the passage that we just read now, the stewardship of the next generation. And one of the first essential elements of stewarding the next generation comes with the very first word. It begins with our own ears. I doubt many of us would argue that first words are quite important. We can learn a lot about a sentence by how someone begins it. If your spouse starts off a sentence by saying, honey, it's typically an indication of an innocuous conversation that's to follow. Like, honey, can you take out the trash? Or honey, can you come over here? Or honey, can you pick something up on the way home? If they start the sentence by saying your first name, 
typically that's an indication that the temperature has been turned down a little bit in the relationship, isn't it? Like, uh, I thought it was honey, and now I'm Stefan, <laughs> or so forth. So the, te- the temperature's been turned down just a little bit. Hey, you is never good. That's, that's the temperature has been turned all the way up. So hey, you, you don't want to hear that. Uh, but how does Asaph begin this psalm? He says, listen, O my people. Listen, O my people, to my instruction. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. Not speak, not do, but listen. To be a good teacher, you must be a good listener. Nelson Mandela was an iconic figure, and not just in South Africa, where he fought to see the end of disparate treatment among racial groups. He was known to the whole world up until his death in 2013. But those who tuned in during his memorial service, which was broadcast worldwide at the time, typically remember one controversial aspect about that ceremony. Those who tuned in, do you know what aspect that I'm talking about? There was one thing um, that stood out, the sign language translator. Does anyone recall that? What was off about the sign language translator? He was a fake. The sign language translator for this worldwide event didn't know what he was doing. He was waving about his hands incoherently as men and women would come up to speak about this figure. Now, what made him an awful translator for the hearing impaired who would require his service? What made him such a bad translator? He never took the time to actually learn how to sign. Would you say that's an important step in becoming a sign language translator? Learning how to sign. That's why Asaph begins here. In order to steward the next generation, we must first seek out wise teachers. Now imagine someone teaching the next generation how to live in a way pleasing to God without first learning what it means to live in such a way themselves. Jesus speaks of this dynamic in Matthew 15 when he's talking about the Pharisees. He says to his followers, let them alone. Let the Pharisees alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind guide guides a man, both will fall into a pit. Far worse than a false sign language translator is a teacher who hasn't taken the time to first listen. And as we've already established, each one of us, every one of us is a teacher. So do we, we sit by and wait to be taught by the correct instructor? If, I, if, if I'm to be a teacher and I'm to incline my ear to other teachers, do I sit idly by? No, we are to actively seek out teachers. Our passage says, incline your ears, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. If you were to, and I'm going to ask you to, to give an object illustration here, if you were to map out or, or act out inclining your ears, what would that respectively look like? Go ahead and do it. Incline your ears. Yeah, most of us did the same thing for those who chose to do it. Very good. Uh, incline your ears. What our passage is asking us to do metaphorically, we are actively to do in our lives. We are to incline our ears to teaching. And who we listen to matters. Asaph doesn't broadly declare that we are to listen to any old teacher. He calls us to his instruction and the words of his mouth, which is far from relativism, where your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Asaph is calling us to listen specifically to biblical wisdom. He appeals to something far more foundational than opinions or loose platitudes. Surveying the text, he calls us to incline our ears to instruction. He says, listen to the parables, to the dark sayings of old. We'll talk about that in a second. Listen to the teaching of the fathers, a testimony in Jacob, a law in Israel. He says, listen to the commandments of our fathers. What is it that he's referencing? Again, not opinions, not loose platitudes, but the foundation of the word of God, timeless, eternal. 
God's word is what he's appealing to. And as you're actively seeking out wise teachers, make sure that they are biblically sound. Make sure they are rooted in God's word. Because guess what? Just as each one of us are teachers, every one of us is students. If it is true that all, all of us are making impressions on those around us, it goes to show that God made us by nature, impressionable. Therefore, we are going to be learning from all sorts of influences and people around us. And so, since we're learning, are we, what are we learning from? The things that we're learning from, are they biblically sound? This requires a level of discernment. We recognize that not every teaching is grounded in the Word of God. Not all things that people are teaching or instructing us are going to face the scrutiny of what God's Word has to say, and that's why we need a level of discernment. Remember, he talks and appeals to the dark sayings of old. In the Hebrew, that's often translated as riddles. But the context of the rest of Psalm 78 is important for all of this because Psalm 78 goes on for another 72 verses. And what he talks about there is he gives a bit of a lineage of how God has worked in the lives of Israel writ large. And he talks about how he worked in and through their lives. And a lot of that is through these riddles, through these dark sayings of old. We see that as a pattern of God in the Old Testament. And how did Jesus teach those when he was walking or his, his earthly ministry he says, I will speak in riddles. Why would he do that? Because those who are not willing to hear will not hear it. We must incline our ear to these stark sayings of old. We must incline our ear to these riddles, these truths from God's word, because unless we actively are seeking out biblical wisdom, it will go over our ears as if it were a dark saying of old. Stewardship of the next generation begins with our own ears as we seek out biblically faithful teachers to train us up on how to live. Now, you might be asking, how can I seek out biblical teaching? Well, one of the most simple ways is if you know of somebody who is biblically faithful, somebody who loves the Lord, somebody who's seeking to walk in the light, then go up to her and ask, can you sit down with me and train me? Go up to him and say, would you just um, mentor me just a little bit? Or we have different point man groups for guys. We've got women's groups for gals. We've got a really robust mentorship program for our women's ministry as well. There are FCI classes. There's small groups. There's ABFs. There's all sorts of ways to get plugged into biblical truth. And if you want to even just get your foot in the door, or go up to somebody who you know is biblically faithful and say, can we get coffee together? I'll buy. You just ask them, can you pour into my life a little bit? I want to incline my ear to biblical teaching. Far from fake sign language translators, we must be stewards of the discipline in growing in godliness in our own life, which enables us to learn what it means to live like Jesus for his glory. But stewardship of the next generation only begins here because then it requires us to speak. Have you ever considered the utter futility of education? (laughs) I know we're we're in Purdue land, so this might be blasphemy that I'm speaking here, but have have you ever just stopped and thought, why am I doing all this? Why why am I being educated? Um, You read, you learn, you think, you listen, you wrestle with difficult concepts, you grow through hardship even in your, in your life, you're shaped through suffering, you fill your life, you fill your mind with wisdom, and then one day you die. Have you ever thought of that futility? What happens to all that learning? You can't download all the information from your head into another person, not yet at least, and despite all efforts, 
Your brain can't be cryogenically frozen for another generation to then extract its wisdom. Plus, not many of our brains would be worth the time, effort, and energy to go about doing that. So what makes it all worthwhile? Why do it? Why heap on education? Why grow in godliness? Why grow in wisdom? What makes it all worthwhile? I'll open up my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. This is active. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generations to come. Tell these things. It is only when we impart that which the Lord has given us does it have any lasting meaning. So what if you've read every book on biblical parenting? So what if you've heard every sermon ever preached by John Piper? So what if you've read the Bible 200 times? The unrepentant serial killer on death row right now can accomplish the same feat. It all counts for nothing if you don't live it. It all counts for nothing if you don't teach it. But the latter won't happen if you don't first cultivate a heart for the next generation, if you have no concern for them. We see this implicitly in our text. How does Asaph speak of the generations that came before him? There seems to be a thanksgiving for those who have gone before him. Therefore, there must be a thanksgiving in our heart for those who have gone before us. And our our passage has a tone of gratitude directed towards the fathers, a thanksgiving for the men and women who had taken the time to pour into them, something that I hope you even considered as you were reflecting yesterday during Veterans Day about the sacrifice that many have made in order to make sure that the next generation, I'm going to give my life to my nation, um, either either from a literal sense or from from an energy spent sense, so that the future and the generation to come might have a future to be looking forward to. To. If you have nothing but bitter contempt for the generation that came before you, what are you sure to display? Contempt for generations to follow you. In other words, if you don't have any appreciation for those who have come before you, you're not going to have a mind for those who come after you. You're going to be inherently selfish. And what are you, O oh teacher, instilling in the next generation? Suicidal scorn. Because if you have no care or consideration or thanksgiving in place for the generations that came before you, what are you teaching the generations coming after you? Why should I have any concern for you? Conversely, when we cultivate genuine gratitude for those who have sacrificially instilled biblical teaching into our hearts, just as the Smith family had done over and over and over again, our focus will naturally turn to do the same. Since I've inherited so much from those who have come before me, I want to do the same for the generations to follow. Our thanksgiving from the previous generation will result in concern for those who will then follow us. This takes sacrificial humility, and I would argue is something that is not inherent in our very person, and I would argue even further that our very culture pushes against this and seeks to instill only selfishness a lack of gratitude for the generations who will come before, and a lack of concern for the generations who are to come after us. And here's a controversial litmus test to even test if that heart attitude has been instilled in our own hearts. How do you feel about the role of a mother whose primary concern is staying at home to raise her children? How do you feel about her role? In a passage that could have been our foundation for this morning, and I believe it was a consideration, Paul instructs Titus that older women are likewise to be reverent in their behavior, not malicious gossips or enslaved to much wine. So they're to be respectful in their demeanor, but then they are to teach what's good so that they may encourage the young women. So they're going to be teaching those who would come after them to love their husbands, to love their 
children. So there's a heart for the generations to come to be sensible, pure, workers at home, kind, being subject to their own husbands so that the word of God will not be dishonored. Now, if that passage causes you to squirm in your seat, you need to ask yourself, why? Why would I be bothered by something like that? When Paul is clearly just pointing to the next generation, looking at my own life, we have the, um, we have the privilege of being able to, I've, I've uh, been able to work while my wife stays at home and takes care of our children. I know that that's not everybody's story or even something everyone has the capacity to do or the ability to do. But looking at my own life in, in any given day, what is more eternally important? My day in the office, answering emails and staring endlessly into the void, which by the way is the life of a pastor. We answer emails and then we stare endlessly into the void. Doing that or Alexandra sacrificially caring for the kiddos. Which one has more of an eternal effect? My point isn't to argue that every woman should be a stay-at-home mom and every man should work in the widget factory. That's not my point. Each person and each family must do what is pleasing to Christ according to God's word. So each person in their circumstance must reflect what is going to be pleasing to God. My purpose is to expose the obvious. Our culture has a severe devaluation of the subsequent generations. We see it pervasive. The only reason why we would undervalue the role of those who are training up the next generations, their role is if we see it as a lesser duty in our own hearts. We must have a burning concern for the next generation that results in action. Thus, when we speak, we must speak the truth and do so in love. It's easy to say really easy things. We're having cake for dinner. Try telling that to a group of kids. That's an easy thing to say, isn't it? And it's an easy thing to hear. But it's hard to say hard things. Due to a series of unfortunate circumstances, we are no longer having cake for dinner. It'd be hard to break that news to a bunch of kids, wouldn't it? It's hard to say hard things. Regarding more serious matters, it's even more difficult to say hard things and do so in a loving manner. I doubt I've struck the perfect balance even in this message alone. But that trepidation shouldn't stop us from teaching the next generation. Don't be afraid to teach and to instruct. They will be learning. Ensure that it is truth that they're learning. Necessary to speaking the truth in love, as Ephesians 4.15 says, we must first speak. (laughs) We have to actually do it. That's how truth, remember, is imparted to the next generation. You can't download it. You can't freeze it and extract it later. You have to actually speak these truths to subsequent generations. So let me ask you, do you speak truth to the next generation? If so, what evidence would you give to this end? Would anyone point to you as being biblically influential in their life? I love Jesus more because of her. He taught me what it means to live like Christ. She led me to Jesus four years ago. If the answer as you're soberly reflecting is no, I don't don't know if I've spoken the truth to love. Is it too late for you? Certainly not, but don't wait. What would you say to the guy who is out on the middle of the lake in his boat waiting for a rock bass to just hop right into his boat? What would you tell that person? Dude, grab your pole and start casting. Actually do something. Don't wait for the fish to hop in your boat. Go out and do something. Pursue the next generation. That's what Asaph seems to be calling us to do here. So with your ears attentive towards biblical knowledge, and your cultivated heart for those who would follow, informed by the genera- thanksgiving for the generation who has come, lovingly engage with subsequent generations. 
teach God's word and do it in a loving manner because our text makes it clear that which we say certainly does matter. Verse 4 says it all. We will not conceal them from our children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works that he's done. There are three main points that we see in this passage that Asaph is drawing out here. Let's walk through these three points sequentially. First, we see our focus must be on worshiping the Lord. He says that when he says, come to talk about the praises of the Lord. What good is it if you've taught your child how to be a faithful steward of his or her finances, time, abilities, intellect, and so forth, but you've never connected that back to the gospel? What good is that if you've taught them these platitudes, these principles, but you've never connected it back to foundational things? Anyone can teach a college student not to spend their stipend on lotto tickets and nightly takeout, but do they know why? Why shouldn't I do that? Everything comes back to God's glory and our role as bringers of his glory. Again, everything comes back to God's glory and our role as bringers of God's glory. So why, O teacher, should the college student not spend all his or her money on lotto tickets and nightly takeout? Because foolish and frivolous spending will not do what? It's not going to bring glory to God. And we are to bring glory to God as the highest thing. The gospel has implications for all aspects of life. It's our goal to connect the dots for these generations to follow. Bring it back to these foundational things to love the Lord. Why should, by way of another example, I speak in a respectful manner? Because Christ paid a high price for my wayward tongue. He wasn't crushed on the cross so that I could berate my coworkers. He bought my freedom so I could glorify God with my tongue. So even in hard circumstances, as you, O oh teacher, are teaching the subsequent generation, use those moments, even of discipline, turn them into gospel opportunities. I know, I, I've, I know of no one who has done this better than uh, someone that many of you might still remember. He, was, he used to be a pastor here at Faith Church, Joey Wright. When the North End was launched, or when the Hartford Hub was launched, he and I um, were there and uh, ministering to the kiddos there. And Joey had the uncanny ability to, no matter what the issue was, to always bring it back to the gospel. Buddy, you know why you shouldn't throw things inside the hub? This is why, because of Jesus. And he would do it more skillfully than that. But he had the propensity and the ability and the heart to bring all teaching moments back to the most foundational thing. You must do this because we are to live for the glory of God. So whatever the situation, our central focus must be the praises of the Lord as our text phrases it. And this isn't accomplished with white knuckle labor. We must point to his strength in order to accomplish all of this, not our own. Remember that this is a psalm of Asaph. One of the most common examples that the psalmist would point back to in order to talk about God's strength running throughout Israel's history was what historical event? Do you remember? When he called them out of where? Egypt. How were the Israelites removed from enslavement to the Egyptians? Did they form a labor union and demand better work conditions? Is that what sprung them from that situation? Did they go up and reason with Pharaoh and eventually he came around to their side of things and said, you know what, I don't think it's right to enslave people. Did they rise up and kill their slave drivers even? No, God had to send Moses to begin freeing them and he did so against their will. They were constantly telling Moses, get out of here, you're only making things worse. It was against their will that they were freed. His strength redeems. God's strength redeems. His strength sanctifies. His strength sustains. But Whose strength are we pointing to when we're teaching the next 
generation. This begins with a humble admission of our utter inability to free ourselves from the slavery of sin. When someone relies on their own strength, even for something as essential as salvation, it is one slave telling another about how to attain freedom. Imagine that folly. If you know the way out, why aren't you doing it? (laughs) It's the blind leading the blind. It is a false sign language translator. Each person must first admit their own inability in order to be made right with God on their own strength. They cannot do it. It's by Jesus' effort alone, what he has done on the cross, that enables us to do that. Strength is an important thing to be talking about in the context of what it looks like to train the next generation because if you or I are trying to do it on our own strength and are pointing to the foundation of the gospel and are pointing to his ability and not our own to make all of this happen, it will be futile. But then our conversations need to be infused with his strength. And that looks like inviting men and women to embrace this gospel, embrace Christ as Lord, especially those who are still seeking to live life on their own strength. And while bringing glory to his name and existing in his own strength, recall the things that he has done. This is the third point that Asaph brings up and how we would train up the generation. And this one's incredibly simple to measure and very easy to do. How often do you, either literally or metaphorically, open up the word of God and just tell people about who God is? How often do you do that? You cannot recall his wondrous works that he has done with the next generation unless you recall the wondrous works that he has done. You can't do that which you are not doing. And so this one's easy to do. Just start telling people about who Christ is. And one of the easiest ways to start might be, I don't know where to begin talking about his wondrous deeds. Maybe just begin by reading the rest of Psalm 78 to your family or so forth. Begin reciting who God is to others. It's never enough to simply know about God. That must translate into what we say and do because what we do certainly does matter. So let's briefly catch up on where we find ourselves. In order to steward the next generation, we must first incline our ears to biblical teaching. Remember, it begins with listen. So we ourselves need to humble ourselves and recognize, I don't have it all figured out. I need to listen to what God's word has to say. And once we're filled up with God's word and then living it out, we then too open up our mouths to train the next generation. Remember, this requires a heart that values those who are going to come after us, even as more important than ourselves. And then as we train up the next generation, remember that what we say certainly does matter. We have to ensure that the words that we are speaking are in line with biblical truth. Just like we're seeking to be discerning with those who are teaching us, we need to be discerning in what we are teaching those who will follow. We're not called to teach fuzzy platitudes, but the praises of the Lord bringing it back to the gospel, bringing it back to who God is, his glory. And we're to teach his strength, not our own. And we're to teach his wondrous works that he has done. Talk about God. If it's all about me, all about my experience, all about what I've done, that's certainly not his wondrous works. And this all leads up to the conclusion of our passage this morning. Asaph makes the purpose of God's law clear. For he established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, talking about God's word, which he commanded our fathers that, it's a very important word, that they should teach them to their children, that the generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, 
that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments. He can hardly overemphasize the essential purpose of God's uh, character and his word in teaching it to the next generation. He almost exhausts us with how he is heaping that on in the passage. And to no surprise, this requires action. Complacency leads to capitulation. Always. If I'm complacent, it will lead to somebody else doing the task. When we don't apply any effort towards stewarding the next generation, we open the next generation up to other teaching. And this, since this world is filled with teachers, any other person seems pleased to fill that role. In this last section that Asaph talks about, it's almost a self-assessment. We can't presume to be teachers of the next generation or even argue that we care about them if we don't live in a way consistent with this calling. The saying goes, more is caught than taught, which again, we talked about before. It can be a kind of a haunting thing. God's word is arguing that we should do both, teach by modeling godliness and teach by preaching godliness, actually instructing, opening our mouths to the next generation. And since we've already talked about the latter, Let's look to modeling godliness based off of Asaph's final charge in our passage this morning. First, he says, is my confidence in the Lord. Teach that their confidence must be in the Lord. So by way of sober self-reflection, not the person sitting next to you, but your own person, is my confidence in the Lord. Each of us knows where the Lord tends to choose to test us in this. Stephen, where is your confidence place? He tends to choose to test us in the crucible of trial. Where is your confidence placed? How I respond to difficulty shows where my confidence is placed. If my life is overwhelmingly characterized by anger or anxiety, where is my confidence, anger or anxiety? It has to be in myself, not God, something other than him, because why would I be perpetually angry unless things aren't going, what's the phrase, my way? I'm angry because things aren't going my way. Or why would I be constantly worried unless I can't see my desired outcome? Where's the concern? Where's the confidence? But if your confidence is in the Lord, you trust his sovereign control over your life. The next generation will see your confidence placed in him and know that he is worthy of their confidence to be placed in him. Again, how we live is so incredibly important to the next generation. But how about the second point? Do I know the works of God? You see in the Psalm of Asaph, in verse 7, he talks about teach and instruct them the works of God. And Asaph does so by warning us about our forgetful tendency. We are to teach others not to forget the works of God, is how he phrases it there. Quick, what did you have for dinner last night? If you're anything like me, though it was only 18 hours ago, even as I was rehearsing it this morning, I still don't remember what I had for dinner last night, and that's not a joke. Um, Though though it was only a short while ago, something so simple takes a while to remember. God's Word is always reminding us of foundational truths time and time again. Thanksgiving, the holiday is coming up, which I am really looking forward to. I love Thanksgiving. It's the time where many of us will see extended family that we don't get to see all that often, And what's going to end up happening this Thanksgiving in your household? Uncle Fred is going to share that same story of that one time when that one thing happened. And everyone around the table is going to groan because they've heard it every Thanksgiving leading up to the one today. Remember, Uncle Fred is always doing that. 
Why does God repeat basic truths to us over and over and over again? Is he a divine version of your Uncle Fred? Is that why he keeps sharing the same things over and over? He doesn't do it because he forgets. He does it because we so often forget. But there's another factor at play here. You can't forget that which you never knew. If you can't recall God's works, it may be because you haven't taken the time to learn them for yourself. What are we to do? How does our psalm begin? Listen, incline your ear, and make sure it is consistent with God's word. But this last point really hits home. Do I keep his commandments? This really gets to the end of it. As you learn, do you do? As you learn God's truth, are you walking in it? The very truths you're seeking to instill in the, ne- in the next generation, do you walk in them? Because nothing undermines teaching quite like hypocrisy, doesn't it? It shows we don't really believe that which we're saying. Imagine the father trying to tell his children, you need to speak in a respectful manner to myself. You need to speak respectfully. And he's teaching that to his kids, but then he goes and turns and he speaks disrespectfully to his wife. What is he teaching by way of action to his children? It doesn't matter whether you speak respectfully or not because the, one, the very person trying to teach me this isn't doing it himself. Just like their confidence isn't placed in God and his laws and his commandments, why should my confidence be placed in that very same thing? You might be thinking, geez, oh, Pete, Stefan, why are you making such a big deal about actions? Why are you doing this? When stewarding the next generation, how important are actions? The author of Proverbs says it well. He says, my son, give me your heart. I love that. My son, give me your heart and let your eyes observe my ways. So for our part, let's incline our ears towards solid biblical teaching. Let's continue to grow in godliness as we seek to instill these truths and speak to the next generation about all that the Lord has done. Why? For what purpose? For his glory. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us the next generation. May we steward it well. May we not punt. We may not put it off to somebody else to teach whatever it is the world would desire to teach, but may we actively speak truth in love. Lord, thank you for psalms like you've given us in Psalm 78. May we practice these things and do them. Lord, for any, any of us who um, need to grow and change in how we act and how we walk out your commandments, I pray that you would convict us by the power of your spirit and then we would actually change and grow. Lord, for those who need to um, find somebody to incline their ear to biblical teaching, I pray that they would not just be convicted of it, but act actually upon it and seek out individuals, seek out groups that would um, teach them your truth. Uh, Lord, for those who would um, need to go out and speak these things to the next generation, I pray that you would give them opportunity to do the same as well. We love you and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.